on inflation, I think, right now. Well, you're not wrong. I mean, I, my life is miserable. Oh, it's inflation, you know. Oh, I can't get closer to the Lord. Oh, it's inflation, dude. I mean, if you... <laughs> I mean, it's just the price of eggs, you know. Up keeps 300%. Us, yeah, crazy. It keeps us from being closer to Jesus, you know. Well, that's a terrible excuse. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, as you can tell by my voice, um, there is no baby yet. And so we are still waiting on that to happen. Uh, who knows? I may get a call in the middle of this podcast and um, we will have to stop midway through to go check on that. But um, in our current pattern, it usually takes our kids a while. They like to bake as long as they can. They're like a good soft cookie. So you just kind of got to let them keep going a little bit. Um, but that's why we have like big like lunkers of kids. Like we don't have, <laughs> we don't have like these little petite things. Um, most of them, I think Henry, he was a little early, but he was like 7, 11. I think everybody else has been like eight pounds. Bertie was eight pounds and Olivia was like nine pounds. So I think we should do like an office pool to see like how big the baby's going to be. <laughs> and then, and then, is that considered gambling? I don't know if a pool is considered gambling, right? I mean, that's like if somebody says, I bet you I can make it into that trash can. Is that gambling? Because you bet on? I mean, are you actually putting money in to see who's right and whoever's closest wins the money? Because if so... I mean, yeah, I guess that, but that's like what we did at the bank. Oh, so people, they're do different sporting events. Like all the bank tellers and stuff would have like pools for different things. So well, that's like, what, like that's what in, I think of when you say that, like NCAA brackets, like everybody yeah. does like at their company at NCAA bracket and whosoever's brackets like gets the furthest wins like a pot. Yep. Yeah. So that's what I thought you were saying. I was like, well, maybe we should do it here in the office where we do an NCAA bracket. But if you win, you get like an extra day off, you know? That's probably worth more than a pot of money. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I know nothing about sports, but I'd participate. Yeah, I would just guess. I would just be like, this sounds cool. I like the team's They've name. They've got a cool mascot. Yeah, mascot. <laughs> <laughs> Their record's like three and a hundred. Oh, we can do that. They're going to fail, but it's like that team that makes it to the NCAA tournament, but they're like the only team in their conference. So, <laughs> Of course you made it. Why yeah. wouldn't you have made it? Oh, but I, uh, so we haven't had a baby yet. So it's, it's kind of a day of just kind of shooting from the hip. And, um, cause we honestly thought that we weren't going to be having a podcast this week, but trying to keep some things rolling. I've convinced Melina a little bit, I think to when we do have the baby, I'm thinking about setting up a microphone at our table and, and interviewing her. Cause we've been talking about trying to interview her for some time, uh, and actually just interview her that week and she's like I don't want to do that and I was like well you don't really have an option like I've, I've got to have content and you need to be my content that I'm going to interview our daughter that would be hilarious that would be fun. it'd be hilarious to interview kids maybe we should do like a, like a kids edition of the podcast we bring kids in just interview them say what your mom and dad said the other day oh oh <laughs> beep, 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 beep. no I'm just kidding um but anyway, so we, we came here today. We do have a, a nice fresh coffee that we got from Neighbors Coffee in Jacksonville, Texas. Uh, the company that roasted it is actually Voltage Coffee out of Decatur, Texas. And so uh, this coffee was roasted uh, first part of July. Actually, I think it's the second week of July, 7-7. And uh, it's an Ethiopian Sadama. It's a natural uh, process, a good light roast. And yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's not bad at all. Um I wouldn't describe it as a light roast. If it's, anything, I think it's more on the medium to dark side of the scale. But I would definitely say it's more medium, only because when I think of dark roast, I'm thinking you see a lot of protruding oils, um, and there's not really that happening. But it's definitely not light, light, you know. Yeah. So they've they've gotten that one a little bit past first crack, um, and then they've pulled that and immediately started the cooling process. Um, really that cooling process is what gives you a lot more of those tones. If you don't have a good cooling process, it's just not going to be awesome. Yeah. I'd say like notes of, uh, milk, chocolate and blackberry jam. Yeah. It's definitely it's got, got like a tartar, but still semi sweetness to it. Yeah. That's why when you make like vague descriptions where it, like the description says floral, fruity, excuse me, floral, fruity and jammy. Um, 
you're kind of like, what well, could mean anything? I mean, yeah, that's how many different so types vague. of fruits are out there, you know? That's why I like, you know, oddly correct when they give their descriptions. It's like a hint of lime, like super <laughs> specific. But did that guy have like a lime before he tasted it? Like, oh, man. Nah, those guys would clean their palate before. They're yeah. just uber specific. I don't know. I think my palate's pretty much destroyed at this point. Like, I feel like most days, um, I don't know. I feel like, I wonder, like, since COVID, though, let, that's a good question. Like, since COVID, have coffee roasters had to change a lot of their descriptions on coffees because now they can't taste it the same way they used to? Even though taste buds replenish themselves, like, we know that, but. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I have noticed that a lot of companies give those really vague descriptions. But is, I, yeah, is it because they can't taste or smell now? I don't think it has anything to do with COVID. I think it just has to do with like they're trying to have the most number of people be like, oh, I can I can get fruity, <laughs> but like not uh, strawberry or blueberry or blackberry. Like they're not getting as specific as maybe like Onyx or Oddly or Messenger, the really high-end specialty people would yeah. get with it i think that's where it'd be hard like if you were a roaster and this is probably how i would do it and i don't know how most other roasting companies do it i mean most of them their employees are the ones their their master roasters are the ones that do a lot of the profiling but i think if it were me i would probably just roast up a big batch and do a cupping with a lot of people that i know and just be like hey i just here's this card and i just want you to write down what you think about this here's this scale you tell me and you're going to actually create the profile of this coffee based off what you as an individual taste not that they took our suggestions but we did that at the cupping that i did at messenger uh-huh. up in their coffee lab and so they had like six different coffees for us from all over the world uh-huh. and like we had to go down and we'd taste each one like every 30 seconds um with like a palate cleanser in between and you'd like write down at different times like what notes you got out of it that's and pretty then, like, cool collectively you like figured out your descriptions that's pretty cool. I mean, to me, I feel like if you can have a pool of people, you have a better descriptor of what's going on. Unless everybody just says dark, bitter. I mean, yeah. okay, well, I'm going to write on this bag. <laughs> dark and bitter. We'll call that the soulless blend. So when you, <laughs> According to the people who don't know yeah. how to taste coffee. No, no soul coffee. Um, I thought about starting a blend today on my way in because I was thinking about like coffees I have. Because I have a lot of like little batches where it's not like a full roast. It's just a little bit. I thought about starting a blend called Gitchabai. Yeah, and trying to figure out how to say it, but literally when people are like, what's Gitchabai blend? Well, it's just coffee to Gitchabai. Coffee to Gitchabai? Gitchabai. <laughs> I like it. I'll, I'll be your first sampler. Gitchabai. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so yeah, Travis and I, we're, we're just enjoying. This is, in case you wanted to know, if you're ever in Decatur, Texas, or pulling through and you come up to Voltage Coffee, this is their Wild Horse uh, coffee. So... Uh, really good, interesting bag, interesting kind of logo, really trendy, but um, encourage you guys, if you're ever in that area and you're traveling, stop by, get you a bag, get you some coffee and, and just enjoy it. And we're not paid to say that, so don't worry. Uh, this is not a sponsor. Yeah, we're making $0 today. Genuinely liking this coffee. Yeah, we are making $0, So, um, which means we can be honest too. Uh, but Travis and I have been kind of sitting and we've been talking about morning trying to figure out what in the world uh, could we talk about. Mostly when we get through the summer, we've exhausted ourselves when it comes to things of theology. Uh, Travis is still recovering from camp. Um, and then I'm getting ready to have a baby. So this has been kind of a weird season for us. Yeah, we also took Ellie's pacifier away last night. So <laughs> I'm dragging. She did oh, not. Oh, so no. On top of that. So she didn't <laughs> sleep. She woke up multiple times crying and stuff. Couldn't Yeah. go back to sleep herself. Um, on top of that. This is the second time this has happened. Um, so this was like, I don't know, Thursday or Friday of last week. Um, I got up at like 6.15 or so uh-huh. and did what I always do with my like get out of bed morning routine, like let my dog out the back door, get his food, then start my coffee. Uh-huh. And when I was like getting the kettle to boil my water, I just like happened. So like our kitchen has a big window in uh-huh. the back of it to like look into our backyard. And so I just happened to look outside and I, I knew my dog was out there. I saw something out of the corner of my eye, I guess. And there's this massive raccoon. Oh. I mean, like a 30 pound <laughs> raccoon. This thing was huge. <laughs> and I had just enough time to think, 
oh no. And then I saw my dog like sprinting from the other side of the yard. I guess the raccoon didn't see him or was trying to get to a tree on the other side or something. But um, so it's like 6.15. Everyone else in my house is still asleep. And then they just start like rolling and there's like these awful sounds coming from it. Um, Like I thought my dog was going to kill this raccoon or the raccoon was going to scratch my dog's eye out or give him rabies or something yeah. like um and they like rolled all over the yard and I like ran out there with like a shovel because that was the only thing I could <laughs> find and uh you know can't shoot inside the city limits and you know obviously they don't want to shoot my dog but like I had no idea what to do so I just yeah. grabbed the first thing I saw and I'm like out there in flip-flops and shorts and it's barely light outside and so that happened last week and then last night in the middle of the whole Ellie thing like not sleeping already um my dog starts like pacing at the back door at like 2 a.m and I'm thinking like oh he just needs to go outside so I let him out not even thinking and that raccoon was in the yard again and they start running around at like 2 a.m and he like pinned it under like there's a little staircase Uh um from our back door and I had to like drag our dog out. So then my adrenaline was going at like 2 a.m. So I'm really dragging this morning. That's awesome. I can't promise anything we say is going to be coherent <laughs> on here. That's great. Well, what you do on the pacifier thing is we, when Olivia had hers, we started clipping it on the ends. Mm-hmm. Um, golly, we are, we're weird parents. We, she had that thing till she was like three. So she would like show up to preschool <laughs> and we would tell us like, baby, you can't take that into preschool. You have to leave it in your cup holder and you can pick it up when you get back. <laughs> so when she'd get back in the car, she'd put it back in her mouth. We clipped the ends of it. And, uh, she was like, why is this terrible? Like she would still try to chew on it or whatever. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, no, we did that too, but yeah. I, I don't know if we clipped too much or what, but she, she just doesn't care for it at all anymore. So oh, yeah, it's like, this thing's broken. Yeah. Well, we blamed it on the dog because she was like, <laughs> oh, the dog chewed my passy. And I'm like, yep, yep, yep. The dog did it. Chewed it up. Wow. So, sorry. Uh, sorry, Olivia. But we actually told her later. Okay. Uh, I was going to say you should explain that on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And then Henry, Henry, uh, he just decided he didn't want it anymore. No, we had lost it. We lost his last one. And I was like, do I need to go get more? And she's like, no. And then Birdie just never took one. Just never took it. Like, so from the beginning of, of everything, we tried to give her one and she'd spit it out. She's like, this isn't what I want. Okay. Um, and so she just kind of never took a passy. We're going to try to do that again this round. So we'll see what happens, but that's always fun. All of human civilization survived without pacifiers until (laughs) whenever they were invented. So that's true. That's true. They just use their thumbs. I mean, that's the nature's pacifier. Yeah. I don't we, know how we got on this subject. <laughs> we talked about you dragging. It's funny though, the the raccoons, I taught Olivia that raccoons are trash pandas. And so she did a whole like homeschool presentation on raccoons. And she said, another name for a raccoon is a trash panda. And so she goes nice. through this whole spiel of how they dig in trash cans and <laughs> all your stuff. And I was like, I'm doing a really good job as a parent. <laughs> but um, yeah, so kids are funny and I enjoy my kids. So just waiting to see if I'm going to have another one anytime between now and the end of the day. But um, technically today is one of our due dates. So we have like a due date window. And I think that's the weird part. Like if you go to like a doctor or a hospital, they're like, okay, well, we're going to induce you on this day. Like you're going to have a baby. Uh, where we do natural home birth, it's like, well, when the baby's ready, like they're going to let you know. As long as you don't get to 42 weeks, we're all good to go. Um, so right now, She's feeling a bunch of stuff, but nothing's really happening. So, um, just a bunch of being uncomfortable. But, uh, yeah. So, we're just kind of waiting around. Just waiting. Yeah. But one of the topics that Travis and I thought about for today to spiritualize this, because right now it's just us talking about our families, um, (laughs) is uh, we have thought about looking at the idea of sacred cows in the church. And when we talk about things like sacred cows, this is usually a topic that we as ministers and I think even lay leaders will touch on. Um, and when I talk about lay leaders, I mean like volunteers or deacons or uh, people that have some sort of position of leadership within the church, um, but maybe not called to vocational ministry or ministry is like a profession or job, if we were to kind of describe it in um, more like a business term. Um, but this is something we always talk about. Like it's almost like those things you don't touch or those things you don't do. And 
every but not because it's in the Bible. It's right. just like a cultural thing. Yeah, and every church has them. I've yet to see a church that doesn't have some sort of a like a it's not in the bylaws, it's not in the policies, but if you don't do it or don't say it or if you don't acknowledge it, then there's going to be problems, you know? Um, and so we thought about kind of talking through a little bit of what that looks like, especially in church life and how we, I guess as ministers kind of deal with those things or work around those things sometimes. Um, and it's not uncommon for us to run into issues on a regular basis where people will bring up something to us. And even though it's not necessarily a bad thing, it may not fall into the mission, direction, or drive of the church moving forward. And it doesn't necessarily have any sort of spiritual weight or value to it at all. Um, and when we talk about, when we say things like sacred cow, um, the, the reason we kind of use that, that lingo and that language is because we, we all, even in our organizations that we work for or that we've been working for or that we have worked for in the past, there's always that one thing that one thing that you don't touch, don't say, don't do, blah, blah, blah. And one of them for me that I've always thought was interesting, and I don't know if, if Travis, you've ever run into this, but one of the things that I've always thought was an interesting sacred cow in a church was the pastor must wear a suit on Sunday mornings. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's sort of geographically located to the South. It's part of Bible Belt culture. Yeah. Because it's like, if you go out anywhere on like the West Coast, it's like, pastor's probably in a black t-shirt. Yeah, and flip flops, and nobody cares. Or like black biker boots. <laughs> but I mean, I remember the first time I was preaching, and I like asked if it was okay if I wore jeans because I didn't know if people would be like legitimately mad. Yeah. So yeah, that's a thing. And I remember uh, we did a revival one time at my home church back in Batesville, Arkansas, and the guy that we had bring in, his name I believe it was John Randall. He was a big FCA guy, like big spokesperson for that. He had kind of a long mulletish type hair with kind of a bald spot going on the front. And he preached every night in like maybe some slacks and a polo shirt and some tennis shoes. But he would sit on the stage a lot. Like he wouldn't even like stand behind the pulpit. He would just sit on the stage. And I always thought I was like, this guy's going to get roasted out of this place, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and they didn't, but it was one of those things where it was like, if you didn't stand up on a Sunday morning and have your suit jacket with matching pants or at least something similar and a tie and everything. I remember even I had a pastor one time, he had to wear like even a vest, you know, to preach in. And I thought, wow, this is, I mean, in my head, I didn't think anything of it. You know, you talk to people about it and they go, well, you're supposed to give your best when you come before the Lord. And I'm like, well, isn't that like every day though? Like, shouldn't we, then shouldn't we all as Christians be wearing like suits and really beautiful dresses or whatever every single day as opposed to just one day a week? Because aren't we supposed to present ourselves before the Lord as an example with the very best every day? Yeah. And it's like, what is, or do we only give first fruits on Sundays at nine? Who decides what the very best is? Yeah. And yeah. So even like the idea of like standing behind the pulpit, um, I mean, I'm pro pulpits, but like, yeah. If you read, I can't remember if it's. I'm the, pro lectern. <laughs> let me say that. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember if it's at the end of Matthew four or the beginning of five, but like right before the Sermon on the Mount, it says Jesus sat to teach, and the reason is because that's like when a rabbi would sit down. It's because that's when you knew like you were getting his official teaching. So, I mean, I'd be I'd be br- pro bringing that back too. <laughs> like, <laughs> like let me just go sit on a stool and. Let's just chat. Well, and I think the interesting part of it is when you um, when you really recognize and see that um, when it comes to like the preaching platform, there's so many things that people expect out of that. You know, I remember the old hat days where you had to, um, if you were preaching, you had to sit up on stage, like as the pastor. You couldn't sit with the crowd. You had to sit up on stage. Mm-hmm in like this specialized pew and my grandpa would do this and he was he was probably like the most country baptist you could ever think of you know if he could preach in his overalls on a sunday morning he would have done it you know (laughs) 
But my grandpa would always sit in this special spot in the back behind the pulpit. And when the song leader's leading the songs, it wouldn't be uncommon for my grandfather to get up in the middle of service and start just standing behind the pulpit and singing along and leading him in music. And then uh, every now and then he'd have his guitar near him. He'd grab that and start playing with him. And I'm like, he's just, he was a wonky dude. Um, <laughs> but I mean, his church loved it because that's just who he was. He was worshiping in the moment. He wasn't trying to uh, create an atmosphere. He was just worshiping. Um but I do think that growing up, that was always one of the things that I thought that's such a huge anticipation that you have in church life, that as a minister, you have to get up there in your suit every single time. And I'm not opposed to suits. I'm really not. I tell people all the time when they're like, man, you look great in a suit. I tell them, I said, well, usually I only wear a suit if I marry you or I bury you. And that's about it. Um, and so every now and then there's a special occasion where, where you know we're asked to wear suits or kind of dress up a little bit i think the very first sermon that i got to preach here i did wear my suit yeah and i did say my suit because i only have one but uh <laughs> i think i have one that fits i have yeah. multiples but only one that actually fits i really want to get a navy one but i don't want to spend the money on it but i want to get like a white linen just for the fun of it <laughs> you know with like white tuxedo type shoes mm. but yeah so i wore my suit and you know this is gonna sound real vain but i was feeling like james bond like it's like yeah this the suit looks good and then I walked up in the youth room and first thing one of the youth said, and I won't say who, but one of the youth was like, you look like you're going to a funeral. <laughs> like, thanks. I thought, thanks, buddy. I, I thought I was looking sharp. Yeah. Looks, guess I'm not that sharp. Um, yeah. So anyways, go back to what you were talking about. Matthew five is when it pops in when the beginning of the sermon on the Mount. Um, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. So, um, Maybe we should institute that. Maybe we should come back to the whole sitting down part. But I think we have to create a mountain if we do that. <laughs> we have to go up a mountain. <laughs> we, we have to build a new sanctuary that looks like a mountain, but just, it still has AC. Just a large lectern like on the way top. I mean, we could do it kind of like the old school like Presbyterian or Episcopal churches where you come out from like a big podium on top of everything overlooking everybody. And you can really see if they're on their phones like on the Bible app or if they're <laughs> actually like looking on Facebook. But I think that's, to me, that's one of those things where in, in, in maybe something that's not as big of a tradition now, I think, I don't think that you have as many churches that are anticipating their pastors to, um, to do that. I mean, I know a lot of modern churches now, they're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which I think at times can be, be, be even way worse because there's, in certain modern churches, this appeal that you have to be almost designery when it comes to the way that you preach and present yourself on a Sunday morning, like some of these guys in mega churches having to wear like, you know, four or $500 sneakers and like super trendy looking pants. I remember going to a conference one time and the MC for the conference, I could literally see the outline of his calves through his pants. Like they were super <laughs> tight. And I was like, this can't be helpful. You know, like, and then, even then like his shoes had a heel to them. Like we're talking like three to four inches. I was like, okay, oh, but wow. Like, this is not okay. Like, I understand fashion and wanting to, like, be trendy. But then there's also this point where you also kind of look a little bit ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's it's natural that whenever there's any culture, and I mean any culture, eventually there's going to be a pendulum swing Yeah, where it's not just like, how do we do this different? But, like, what's the opposite? Right. And so I think you see that in a lot of those, like, uber trendy churches but then you go to churches in like third world countries and that that's not that a lot of times like a lot of times they're just literally wearing what they have yeah it's you like, know pastors are wearing what they have this is my daily attire yeah this is what I own and their nicest thing may be a polo shirt they got from some mission team that came through America and it's got some company logo on it they didn't even know about you know oh yeah but that's the nicest thing they have and um, so it's always that that conversation that would exist of you have to wear your very, very, very best. Well, right now, the very best that I have that fits <laughs> is a pair of jeans and like a decent, you know, button-up shirt. And I, I don't mind wearing a jacket every now and then. I don't mind certain aspects like that. But um, especially in preaching, like, it doesn't bother me. Um, I mean, just kind of to push on the idea of it being a sacred cow. Yeah. Only in some churches. Not every church, but in some churches. Sure. But it's like, I don't know. I guess that comes from Old Testament when they're talking about either the tabernacle or the the temple and like the priest would have to wear a certain garb. Like that's 
Yeah. That's their rationale for it. Because I'm trying to say, like, I guess at least New Testament church acts on, you see no command. Right. Like, oh, elders, by the way, here's this, like, list of qualifications, and you also have to be dressed real nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't forget to wear the, the best thing you can afford. Like, that was not Paul or Peter or John's, like... Titus, Timothy, none of those guys. Yeah, so that wasn't like their priority. Well, I think that brings up that point too about there are certain elements of this, and not we're not talking about just dressing up, but even the whole like things we don't touch in church, we don't talk about, we just allow them to exist. There's almost this this sense of Pharisaicalism that that pops in the middle of that too, because you've got um you got people that go, oh well, it has to be this because of this, and it's like well. It doesn't have to be that way, you know. Um, there are certain, I think, traditions that churches hang on to that um, really need to die. They don't need to continue to exist because they actually do more. They, well, they hinder the church more than they help the church. It may not be that it's a bad thing, but it produces more of a hindrance in moving forward than actually um, just doing what is scripturally appropriate and biblical. Um, but I do think that I think as pastors, um, uh, I think it's important to at least look decent. I don't think that you should get up there and look like you literally just got done mowing the lawn. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think it was, it's like, it's a, I would treat it like I would any other job. Um, I think that if I was to go into a, a nine to five, uh, with a cubicle, I mean, they're going to ask me to dress to a certain professionalism. And I think that exists within church work too. So I, I disagree with a lot of pastors who are just like, oh, let me just t-shirt flip-flops and shorts this thing. It's like, well, that may fit the culture of your church. I mean, if you're doing like surfside church and you literally meet on the beach and then afterwards you go surfing, maybe that works, you know, because <laughs> that's like the 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 climate or the, the culture of your job. Yeah. Um, but I think that there's just a decency that's supposed to come with, with preaching, but I don't necessarily think that there has to be a certain mode of that do you think that like sets the the stage so to speak for the rest of the congregation though so like i'm i'm trying to give a counter argument maybe yeah um so this was like a decade ago when thomas raleigh and i were on tour with that band that we went on tour with Uh and you know we were on the road playing punk shows so all we had was like we had jeans but t-shirts and we decided to go to this church that I'll leave nameless while we were on the road. And like we walked in and, you know, granted we're all getting out of like a van in a Mercury Mountaineer, like looking pretty ragged. Uh-huh. But like we wanted to go to church because every person in both bands were believers. Uh-huh. And so we went to this church and we just got like this massive amount of like ugly stares. Yeah. No one talked to us. And it was like, we're genuinely here to worship and like want to, to sit under the word. But yeah. because we weren't dressed nicer, like it was almost as if we weren't welcome. And so, I mean, I get the professionalism aspect, but I think you still have to create a culture that is genuinely welcoming to whoever walks in your door. I think that's really the what you said there in the end is the key point. I think that, there are certain people that, again, if if we have we've had people all the time that are traveling, they pull up in a boat, you know, or they pull up in an RV, uh, and they're genuinely traveling. They have what they have to travel in, and I think that times you just accept them where they are. I mean, if they're saying, "Hey, we're passing through, we're just stopping in today," hey, fantastic, glad that you're here. Uh, if you have any questions about our church or anything about our town that we can help you with before you move on to the next place, man, let me be a resource to you. But I think that atmosphere has to be created in the church. I think when you remove that and you elevate the expectation that that people are to be a certain way when they walk through the doors, then you are actually you're raising the bar in areas that doesn't need to be raised and you're lowering the bar in areas that do need to be raised. So I think you're lowering the bar in people's uh, ability to connect with just complete strangers um, and people's ability to accept people how they are, like you begin to lower that bar and lower it, lower it, lower it, and lower it. And essentially where it gets to, we only accept those who look like us, you know, um, which is very counter to the gospel, uh, in every way, shape and form. But we lower their expectations on that, but we raise the expectations again on, here's what it means for someone to look like us. 
Um, and so we begin to elevate things that don't need to be elevated and we begin to allow that to be a perception. But I think for like pastors, I think one of the big things you have to do is you have to read your congregation. So I started picking up on this months ago. Uh, and really it's been longer than that, but I really started making it a point months ago, um, to where people that walk into the doors of our church on Sunday morning, I look at them, I look at what they're wearing and how they presented themselves especially as males, like I'm not going to do it with ladies because that's weird. (laughs) But with males in particular, leaders of the home, guys that are leading out in our church on a regular basis, I watch them. 90% of those guys, I would say 80 to 90% of those guys are wearing jeans and some sort of button up shirt that's tucked in. Every now and then you might have something else. Um, Every now and then you might have something else that pops up. Like they might have like a vest on or they might have a jacket on or something like that. For the most part, you've got guys that are blue collar, they work every single day. Um, they are busting their tails to try to make life work. And a lot of times they're going right after church to do more work in, in some form or fashion. <clears throat> so they may not show up in the best things that they have, or, or at least like in a suit. They may show up in what they have, which, which is comfortable to them. Um, so when I look at it, I look at it from that perspective and I begin to say, I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to elevate myself above the people in my church. I want to identify and be identified with the people in my church. I want it to look like I am a part of them. Honestly, boots and a button down shirt are not my, if, if I could pick my Monday through Saturday attire, wearing cowboy boots and a button down shirt is not my every day attire. I was going to say, I don't think I've ever seen you wear cowboy boots except on Sundays. Yeah, like today I'm in my my Vans and I'm wearing a button-down shirt just because I'm in the office. But like if you were to see me at home, I might be in like some flip-flops and some shorts. Um, if you were to see me out and about in the wintertime and it was just me, I'm probably going to be in a t-shirt and some Vans um, and maybe a hoodie. Like I'm not – I'm still kind of an old-school punk rocker in that <laughs> – like, and I look at these dudes that I see coming to the coffee shop and they have this really sweet, like vintage t-shirt and cool old Levi's and some Converse. And I'm like, I want to be that guy when I get to my sixties, you know, and he's, he's still that, you know? Um, but I think that there's just those aspects that why would I, why would I give a super false impression of who I am when it, it doesn't feel like that's who I am? It doesn't feel like that's who my congregation is. So I think it's one thing. I think the other thing that we brought up that's kind of a sacred cow is, is pulpit. Yeah. Now I listened to, um, it wasn't JD Greer. Who was it? He was at Midwestern. Uh, he was like the Dean of preaching or something at Midwestern. Anyways, super smart dude went to a revitalization conference in Atlanta that he did. And he specifically talked about, uh, the need for preachers to preach behind a pulpit. Um, he said it doesn't necessarily have to be a pulpit like we think of a pulpit, but some sort of like a lectern or a table or something. There has to be something that a pastor is presenting from. And he gave biblical reasoning of why that is, biblical hmm. and cultural reasoning of why it is. And I cannot remember uh, for the life of me who it was, but that really struck up something in me to think, huh, like I never thought about that. Because I used to think, oh, you don't, you don't need that stuff. You just need somewhere to set your stuff down and you're ready to go. And I've seen pastors in mega churches, they don't have a table. They don't even have a pulpit. A lot of them just have like a clicker and their notes and everything is on it. And they do a great job. I've seen guys that have their Bible out and never opened it up because they just know what they're preaching and they know the verse, they know the context, they know the words. I'm still a firm believer that having a Bible there and reading from that Bible as opposed to my notes, especially when it comes to scripture, I don't know. I feel like that carries more weight in my heart. And so that's why I do it. Um, it doesn't mean that if a, if a pastor did that at a church, I wouldn't go back. Like it would just, for me to preach, I'm going to be comfortable that way. Um, but the idea of a pulpit, like we traditionally think, like people are like, if you're not standing behind the pulpit, like there's no way God can bless my heart if you're not standing behind that pulpit. Yeah, it's also interesting that like there were pulpits before the Protestant Reformation, but they were always off to the side of the stage. And so it was like the message part of a sermon or of a, of a service was always just like one aspect. Right. So 
I mean, you, you, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't necessarily want to get into with differences in Orthodox Catholics and Protestants, but, um, but like most of church history, the pulpit was not in the center of the stage. Yeah. The sermon was only one aspect of worship, not the main thing of worship. Yeah. And like, I definitely believe in the preaching of the word. Uh, I'm not saying that I don't, but it's interesting how post reformation because of the, re- the reformers belief that we needed more biblical teaching, which was true. Um, they moved it from the side of the stage and one part of a service to center stage and the main part of a service. Yeah. And, you know, if we said like we were going to do like mostly worship and communion and, you know, a whole bunch of things and you only got like a mini sermon, like we'd have people freak out. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. I need like my 30 to 45 minutes, but don't go longer (laughs) than 45 minutes. Uh, And it's just, I need you to fit it within this hour. All right. Yeah. Like I I still got three songs and invitation and I need, we still got to beat the lunch crowd, but you know, it's just interesting. Like the whole structure of a service and the length of a sermon and all of that has roots in the reformation and the enlightenment that I don't think most Protestants are even aware of. Yeah, and I think that's probably an interesting thing is even just liturgy in a church. Like you've got certain uh, denominations or uh, very old classic churches that they have a set liturgy and that's what they're going to follow. And they believe that that there's even what Eastern Orthodox, they even believe that they are the closest to the early church when it came to uh, the way that they... Uh, to be fair, everybody thinks they are. Yeah, everybody thinks they are. <laughs> but but they're, they're ones that they're like, oh no, the liturgy that we do is is almost exactly like what the apostles would have done. Yep. And uh, I think it's interesting that when we get into churches, I love visiting churches for the simple fact of saying, how do you, like, how do you set up a service? Most Baptist churches, I feel like are the same. There's a song, an intro song, there's announcements, there's a welcome time, there's more songs, there's a special with offering, and then you do the preaching, and then you do an invitation, and then you go home. And that's generally how, I mean, that's how it was when I- 98% of services? Yeah, that's how it was when I grew up. I mean, that's how it is like here. Um, That's how it's been at other churches that I've been to a lot of times. There There was one church I went to, it was really interesting. We had done a lot of worship. We were probably three or four songs into worship. And right before we did anything um, like with offering or any of that stuff, and we're talking big church. This was in Houston, probably 1,500, 2,000 people. And there's a lady that gets up on stage. She does all of the announcements. Um, and then after the announcements, they do like kind of a bumper video. And they're taking up offering at that time. And then there's another, but like in between worship songs, I think it was in between worship songs. They had just a person like a youth or a college kid or just a kid from the family would get up and read the passage that they're going to go over that day. And then they would do more worship. And then at the end, there wasn't like a set invitation at the end. It was, if you have questions or if you want to respond to this in any way, we've got people throughout that would love to talk to you. I will be in the back after service. Please come find me. uh, And I'll talk with you about that. And, you know, the pastor was accessible. Uh, he's a great dude and got to say hi to him just real quick and say, hey, love your books. You know, really enjoy kind of your approach on family ministry. Um, just visiting for the day. And he's like, man, thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah, just, you know, kind of love, love having you. And so it was just a real neat thing like that. But if you were in crisis, there was always people, you know, outside that could help you through that. And I always thought that was kind of an interesting way because it broke up a little bit of that Baptist traditional liturgy a little bit. Now, again, you have to kind of adjust based off your area and where you're at. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think that there's a foolproof way that you can do a worship service on a Sunday. I think you just have to, again, feel what is good for your congregation. Um, I would say that congregations that for the most part are like biblically illiterate, like we talked about last week, um, I think that you may have to go a little bit longer sermon because you're going to have to to do a little bit more diving into like a passage or diving into like a um, a process. But uh, yeah, yeah, the even just like the idea of the order of a service, I guess, could be a sacred cow. Oh yeah, like if we tried to switch everything up, I we, wonder. And we've done that here, yeah. and it it was fine. I think most people didn't really seem to care. 
the only people that it threw off was like the rest of the staff because we're just so <laughs> used to doing it a certain way. And I remember I would have to sit there. There were some Sundays we used to do offering at the end of service. Mm. And so like for second service and I would sit there and I would have to hold up like a plate. I would come up and I would sit in the front row and I would grab a plate and I would hold it in front of me and wiggle it. So when Paul was doing an invitation, he would recognize, oh, we haven't taken an offering yet. Yeah. Um, because it just, again, it goes against everything that he had done. I mean, he'd been here 20 years at that point. Yeah. Can you imagine just throwing it at one week and going, hey, let's do this different. I've been doing the same thing for 20 years. That's, golly, how many services is that? I mean, we did 20 times 52. I don't even know in my head. It's like a, over a thousand sermons, right? Yeah. Services. And all of a sudden we switch it up. <laughs> so um, it took him a little while and then he got used to it and it was, uh, you know, way better. But yeah, that was one of the things that stuck out, but we also liked like our church in Kansas City. So like when worship started, um, it would basically go almost right up until the sermon with like no interruptions. Uh-huh. And then we had a time of corporate confession yeah. Which sounds very Catholic to people who aren't used to that idea. Um, so there's a time of corporate confession. And then someone would get up and do the reading uh-huh. of whatever the passage was because we did exegetical preaching. Um, and then after someone did the reading for the day, which, you know, I think people might think of as like Episcopalian or something. Right. Um, then the pastor would get up. He would make announcements before the sermon. But like that, that was at that point. Then he'd give the sermon, and then during the, I guess you'd call it invitation, was also when everyone would take communion, which we did every single week. And it was very, like, they used the word liturgy in their service, which, you know, a lot of Baptists don't do. Right. Because it sounds too Catholic or whatever. Um, But if you just get to, like, the history and root of it, it just means, like, the flow of worship. Right. And, yeah, so, like, having corporate confession, having a scripture reading time, having... Um, like call and response times every week, having communion every week. Like it was, it was so different than anything that I grew up with. Yeah. But honestly, we loved it. Yeah. Well, I think there's those personal aspects that come from it too. And we would do, when we would go um, between churches before we came here, we would go to Oak Cliff every now and then and go listen to Tony Evans. And one of the things they did is they did communion every service. And, but they did at the beginning of service. If you weren't there at the beginning of service, they shut the doors. So they would completely close the doors and you had droves of people that were just standing in the foyer and they would want to get in. Ushers would be like, I'm so sorry, but we've started communion. Uh, so at this point, no one can enter in. And I always thought that was a very interesting thing. That's how sacred they took it. Like they didn't want any disruptions. They didn't want anything causing, you know, people coming in late, doors opening and closing. They didn't want any of that. It was mm-hmm. super important to start that service off with, kind of that corporate confession, like get your heart right. Yeah. Um, let's not, let's not sit here and try to pretend. I think that's one of the things in Baptist churches that is also maybe a sacred cow. Um, we do technically, uh, we are supposed to do a communion like once a quarter, um, or every fifth Sunday, you know, <laughs> that was kind of the things like they would do communion every yeah, but fifth it's like, Sunday. Where'd that come from? That's not in the Bible. Yeah, because it, it says that even even uh, the apostles and disciples, when they would meet together regularly, that they would break bread and fellowship together. Um, and even Jesus says that as often as you do this. And I think what the fear was that we would do it so often that it would lose its meaning. But I think that has to come from the leadership. I think it's the leadership's responsibility. Like It's the same thing with offering. I think if you do offering every Sunday in the same manner, in the same way, it's going to lose its meaning. And that's why when I talk about offering, I talk about it as this great, awesome act of worship and obedience that we get to do. Uh, I don't want that to be lost in the midst of looking like I'm just trying to collect money. You know, this is, this is obedience. This is worship that we're continuing in. Like when we take up our offering, it's a continuation of worship. Um, it's a continuation of the worship overflow of our heart. It's the obedience of our heart uh, in response to the things that God's blessed us in doing and, um, so to me, I think communion's that same way. I think if the pastor says, okay, at this time we're going to take communion and there's never really an explanation of why it's so important that we do that. Yeah. I was afraid of that when we joined this church, like that it would just become like a ritual or routine or whatever. Yeah. But I honestly grew to like the practice more and more. 
Um, and by this church, he meant the church in Kansas City, not the church. Yeah, the, the, the church Baptist. that I was referencing <laughs> that did it every single week. Um, and I've since read some books, and I think I've mentioned before on the podcast that my in-laws are part of the Church of Christ, and part of the Church of Christ is that you take communion every Sunday, and they've yeah. got verses and acts and stuff that uh, at least imply that the early church did take it every single time they gathered together. Uh, but one of the things that they do, like when we're visiting family in California, um, you know, we'll go to church with them. And um, before they do communion, there's almost like a little like two or three minute sermon on like, no, no, no. Remember why we do this. Like, remember the sacrifice. And it's very, it's not just like, hey, like have the bread in the cup and yeah, like, yeah. let's move on. Um, it's very intentional in how they think about it. And I think that that's really what helps it not lose meaning. You know, the same thing with baptism. Like, I I don't know, like, because I know that one of the trendy things to do in churches right now is to do one full service where all you do is baptize, like, one service. You talk about it and do baptisms. Uh, it's the same thing with, like, baby dedication. Like, here with baby dedication, we dedicate on Mother's Day. Uh, I'm of the impression that if there's a kid, if there's a family joining, like, coming to the church regularly and they want to dedicate their child and they don't want to wait, why not add that as a part of the service? Why not have those moments that are built into services where you can rejoice with families immediately and not have to wait for a year to rejoice with them, you know? Uh, same thing with baptism. Why wait? Why not just rejoice in the moment? I mean, to me, it'd be great to have baptism every single Sunday because we're seeing our church go out and share in the community. Uh, I, I mean, we know that baptism isn't, isn't a mode of salvation. It is a representation of what Jesus has done in your life and your commitment to that in public obedience and public profession. But I think to see, for a church to see people making that profession weekly would do amazing things to not, not talking about the attendance of a church, but to the overflow of the heart of Jesus in a church. I think that they would see a movement of the Spirit and go, oh, I want to be a part of that. Um, and I think communion is the same way. I think if you take it every day, it's going to be like, golly, they're going to know Saturday, I'm going to take communion in the morning. I hope that I've cleared up some things with the Lord from Monday to now that maybe I shouldn't have been thinking or doing or saying or acting or, in other words, that I wasn't operating in a, in a mode of righteousness, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've sort of touched on dress yeah, pulpit a little bit, liturgy. Yeah. What other sacred cows do you see as issues? Golden plaques. Golden <laughs> plaques? <laughs> golden plaques, sorry. Yeah, anything that has a gold plaque on it. Uh, no, just, I, I think to, I think one of the things is um, things that are donated to the church. So it's not necessarily like financial things, but oh yeah, to me, that can be a very big sacred cow. Um, we... And part of that, I think, is like an IRS thing, too. So if if a church accepts a gift from an individual and it's a material gift, whether it be land, whether it be a house, whether it be a piano, whether it be a chair, uh, whatever it is, um, the IRS can kind of seize it as a charitable gift. And any time that they see that as a charitable gift and the church accepts that, there's obligations that come along with it. That's why if you ever hear me say, I'm cool with any gift that people want to give in the church so long as it fits the mission and the vision of our church, but there will not be a gold plaque on it. Like there is no in memoriam of attached yeah. to it. Anytime you do that, it becomes a really tricky water. Um, but let's talk about another sacred cow then that's different from golden plaques. Uh, assigned seating. Ooh. Ooh. That's a good one, right? Yeah. Sorry, my mind was focused on the golden plaque thing because oh, well, it, it mentioned golden plaques. That didn't give you a chance to talk about golden plaques. It just made me think of a church that I went to uh, to preach at one time. That yeah, it just had this like really bad artwork all over the entire church, but every single one of them had like a in so memory of so, something. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like <laughs> you can't get rid of it. Yeah, you and can't. It, I mean, this stuff was really old and outdated and looked pretty tacky in my opinion, but. Yeah, uh, that's hard. I mean, we've known of churches that have accepted land, you know, in in like a will, like somebody leaves their land to them or something like that. And they accept this land and you go to look at it and it's just swamp. Like there's nothing you can do with it. It has no monetary value. You can't sell it. You can't do anything with it. You know, it's at that point just waste. And it's hard because now you have to pay taxes on that. Now you have to do something with it and you just pretty much, and, and, and 
if there's any living family left that has donated that, if you want to sell it, you almost have to get permission from them to even sell it uh, because they gave it. That was a, a gift for them. You gave them a tax write-off on that, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, so I think that there's just some of those things that you have to be careful of. Uh, years ago, we put a financial policy in place that pretty much allowed our team to reject or accept any gift that comes into the church um, and also looks at every line item and we were able to reject or accept. So if, if you write a check today, and you put, you know, $1,000 on that check. And in the memo field, you put uh, for new pews. And if the finance team sees that check and we go, okay, this check says that it's for new pews. We have zero intention of putting pews anywhere in the church. You can call that person and say, I know this says for new pews, but can we repurpose it for new chairs? If they say, no, it has to be for pews, then the finance team and leadership of the church can go, well, unfortunately, we are not going to be able to accept this check. And they can give that back to them. But if the person says, yeah, it could be for chairs, like no big deal. Just wanted it to be for, you know, an upgrade in seating. Awesome. If they accept that check, then it can go into a specific designated account that allows it to be used just for those purposes. And, um, which new seating wouldn't be a bad idea in here, but we won't get into <laughs> that. Um, it's still pretty comfortable. I just wonder how many like, people have tooted in those seats and it's just kind of lingering in the foam. But, um, so back to seats then. Yeah. Back to seats. Worst transition ever. Worst transition ever, <laughs> but we're trying here. Um, assigned seating. That's always been something I thought was kind of a, a thing in the church. Like you don't sit there because that's where so-and-so sits. Yeah. Like, what do you think that does to a person walking in for the first time and they sit somewhere and they oh, go, I literally had someone, I don't know. This is two or three Sundays ago. who was visiting. And they asked, where can I sit? I don't want to take anyone's seat. Um, and it's just, it's, I mean, I, I get it. Like I'll play devil's advocate. Like you get in a routine, you sit in the same place, you right. know, the people around you, you know what the stage looks like from where you're sitting. Like that's the fault of the public education system. No, that's not the fault of the church. <laughs> uh, other side <laughs> conversation, but like humans like routine. Yeah period yeah so i get the psychological nature of it however if a stranger walks into the church and you can't be so hospitable to let them have your seat like you need to check your heart with the lord this is not an easy like this is not a, a problem that's just all of a sudden existed uh when when brother paul would lead the group to independence baptist there in um independence um, you would see the spot. They actually have a flag, a Texas flag and everything in the spot where Sam Houston would sit every single Sunday where he carved his name into the back of his initials into the back of the pew. You know, that was his spot. I mean, they've recognized it now. I mean, how long has he been dead? And we still recognize that Sam Houston spot. Like you don't sit, you don't sit where Sam Houston sat. I mean, you can, but, um, I think that that's an interesting piece. Like I've been at churches where a pew is named after a family, you know, and that family still sits in that pew. And I'm like, Okay. I'm going to show my ignorance here, but yeah. wasn't there a time like somewhere in the Puritan movement where they literally did like assign seating by family? They would some. Now, it wasn't uncommon within the Puritan um, church for them to have pews of discipline that you would have like towards the front or, you know, whatever side of the sanctuary they were on. Um, there were pews of correction or discipline um, that they would do. and But was there any like historical precedent for like, no, this family sits here? Uh... I I don't think so. Okay. I think so it's, it's just, just human sliking routine. I think so. And and it may have just been too, like it was easier for the pastor to keep up with who was there and who wasn't, you know, I don't know if they kept good attendance records back then. Um, and so if I knew, okay, well that family's gotta be on vacation cause they're not sitting in their pew where I can move every single Sunday and people will be like, where's Charles at? You know, um, we usually kind of have our routine, but we've moved in this sanctuary I think we're in our fifth or sixth different spot since we've been here. So we just every couple like, years we yeah, just find a we new just spot. Move around. We're like, oh, there's an open spot. Let's go there. Uh, but generally, like even on Sunday mornings, I will kind of get a perception of where people are going to sit. Um, and they just have kind of again, like you said, routine. But the sacred cow part comes when you have people that uh, believe that that is their seat and no one else can have that seat. 
and I just think that's an interesting piece because it's partly in that when, like you said, when people do show up for the first time, like how we approach them, whether it's apparel or whether it's seating or whether it's whatever, how we approach them and how we communicate to them. And if we say, well, don't sit there because that person's going to chew you out. If you sit there, don't sit there because that, you know, it's going to leave a negative impression on the welcoming nature of the church. Oh, for sure. That's the hardest part. When I go visit a church somewhere, that's always the hardest part that I might sit somewhere that is somebody else's spot, you know? And, you know, churches do that when it comes to parking. I think parking is the same way, but they would do visitor parking, you know? Well, then if you're doing visitor parking, do you do visitor seating? Like, do you put all the <laughs> visitors in like one spot so you know there's visitors there? Um, that Maybe that's no, something that we would, need to do. That would make them feel so <laughs> awkward. At least if you're an introvert like me, I would hate that. Oh, that would be great. I'd be like, oh, let's put all the visitors in visitor seating and then we can let them be their own little group and then we'll just go, we'll let everybody tackle them. Um, and I don't think Calvary has a huge issue with that. I have seen churches where that is an issue, especially like littler, smaller country churches where that can become a big thing. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. Assigned seating, though, I think is one of those sacred cows. We haven't touched worship music at all. Oh. I guess because modern worship music changes so much. I also feel like we're finally maybe getting past the, the worship wars. I don't think so. I think that our church is, but I don't think other churches are. I think the other churches are still struggling. In fact, I was looking at a church the other day, um, seeing their service. I got a buddy that's out there and they have a traditional service and a modern worship or contemporary worship, like what we have. And then communicating with him, he literally told me, he said, it's two separate churches. I've got one church that does it this way. And one church that meets in a completely separate facility that does it this way. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, there's no real interconnection there. Uh, and I've even thought about that. Nathan and I talked about it the other day because we had our July 4th service not too long back. One of our bigger attendances of the week. And I was like, man, we could do one service for a while. Like we could just jump into one service. I think yesterday we had 257 in our worship attendance yesterday. Um, why couldn't we do one service and just do blended music, you know? But I think that's where it comes down to that sacred cow. If we start throwing in, even if it's not like very loud and aggressive modern type worship on a first service, pack your bag. Like it's, you're <laughs> That's not why they're there, you know? Um, now, some people are there in the first service because they want to go to lunch early or they're just early to like early risers, you know? Yeah. We've got families in our church that getting up at 5.30 in the morning, you know, kids and everything, that's just their routine. And so instead of sitting around all morning waiting for church, man, if I can go early and be done with service that week and then get about my day, I'm going to do that. And and we've just got some families that are like that. But um, you got some people that are like, oh, I don't want to go to the loud music service, which our second service isn't very loud at all. I've, no, not comparatively. I've, I've been to the production services and they are ear piercing. Um, but I think that when it comes to worship music, we talk about the worship wars. We talk about the the struggles that have happened in churches in the past. I, I think here we're not going to see it as bad or as much. And I think that you'll even find some crossover in there. I think that you'll find people that just want to come worship. They're not really concerned about what music it is. I'm one of those people. Uh, if Nathan said, hey, we're only going to do hymns on Sunday in first and second service. Cool. Let's do it. Hymns don't bother me. Um, you know, some modern worship probably bothers me more than hymns. Same. Yeah. But um, but I think that there's uh, aspects of of worship that can be a sacred cow. Like I remember one time here specifically at Calvary, uh, we had a worship pastor who moved our electronic drum set underneath the big cross that we have against the back wall. Mm -hmm. Man, did he hear about it? You know, it's like drums don't need to be under the cross, you know? Um, <laughs> but I, the way I see it, if the drums are so satanic, shouldn't they be at the foot of the cross? You know what I mean? Oh. Like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a stretch. That was a huge stretch, but you know what I mean? Like, there are certain things like that when you start adding instrumentation on stage, people go. I mean, if you look uh, at if you look at almost any band on any stage, 
I'm not just talking worship. I'm talking all of music. Yeah. The drums are usually center stage in the back, but center stage. And so I think a lot of worship people do that just because that's what they see and they don't think anything wrong of it. But yeah, if, if you're covering up a few inches at the bottom of the cross. Yeah. Watch out. Well, I think too, especially for a drummer, it's his responsibility to continue the tempo of the whole song. Um, and to be able to see every band member at once and see what's going on, that's a huge deal. Where if you're way off over to the side and you can't see the lead guy who's over on the far right of the stage and he's trying to wave you down and be like, no, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. going to be different. Um, where we have it right now, I think is fine. Uh, I think, you know, we didn't catch too much flack for the fishbowl. Uh, people wondered, you know, what in the world are we doing with this massive drum set and this massive like contained thing? And I said, look, this is the simplest, most decorative and easy way for us to keep this from being ear piercing. Uh, and so that was the whole reason we selected that. It looked way better than just having like a shield and some like old foam pieces shoved on <laughs> top of it. I mean, the the way we had it before looked pretty raggedy. Yeah. Uh, this way it looked a lot better, a lot better. And so that's the reason we went the route we did on that. But I do think that you've got some people that either it is that continued interpretation that um, you can suffice with just piano and organ. And I, I think we even, we've even had a lot of people that have uh, come to us about even the organ. I mean, the organ's been a big thing. And I'm not against the organ, but finding people that can still play the organ is such a challenge. Um, it's an instrument that you don't see a lot of in Baptist church anymore because either the people that played it can't play it anymore or, you know, the, it, it just, so there's some things in there that we have to consider and we have to look at as well. Um, I think you can accomplish a lot with a piano, but even then the piano used to be super taboo when it came to early church. It was out of the honky tonks. Like, no, the honky tonks use piano. Well, and <laughs> like some of you, even some of the, the jingles that we use for hymns came out of honky tonks or old Irish drunken hymns, you know? So it's like, it, it's not even a, a thing of, and, and I think when you really look at the root history of some of how Christian culture has pulled from other areas, I mean, we could get into holidays on that one. We can get into the Christmas tree if we really wanted to on that oh, one. Yeah. Uh, or Halloween and Easter egg hunts, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, in churches. And so we could get into, but see, even those then become sacred cows because it's like, well, you're not doing an Easter egg hunt. no. We believe in the resurrection, not in fertility. You know, I mean, it's like uh, the God of fertility. But, you know, the the it, trees in a church, we don't get rid of Christmas trees in a church. But when you look at the history behind it, you're like, oh, Santa Claus. <laughs> I mean, if we really, I mean, if we really want to get deep into it. There's some things that we hold dear to and we hold on to that we're like, well, this has to be a part. And it's like, does it? Yeah. You know, I mean, we're not Santa Claus people at my house. I mean, I don't want to go there at all, but. Even the God and country service, there's a lot of people that feel very opinionated on both sides. Yeah, it's so it's we have to be very careful, I think, at, with those things of even how we uh, deal with holidays because we have to weigh everything that we do against Scripture. We understand that, and and we can confidently sit back as believers and say that. But I think that as believers, we will say. I want to weigh my life against scripture, but I will still permit certain things to come through. Even as I weigh my life against scripture, we're all faulty at that. Like, I don't think anyone's not at fault on that, but I think when it comes to a lot of like, again, the sacred cows or traditionalism, sometimes we talk about that routine. We do it because it's what we've always done. Uh, we were brother Paul last night was in John 12 and talking about even the Pharisees. When you get down to John 11 and John 12, John 11, you see Lazarus now doing ministry with Jesus. The Pharisees already have a bent with Jesus and they want to kill him. You know, they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. Like he's killing our faith. Like people aren't coming back to the tabernacle. They're not coming back to the temple. They're not worshiping. Like we got to get, we got to do something with this guy. And then they see Lazarus and now people are believing in Jesus because of Lazarus is like, well, crud. Now I got to kill that guy too. You know, um, I always thought that was an interesting way and this may be a completely separate podcast at some point, but it was really those verses in there that, that formulated in me this understanding of 
congregational and organizational anxiety in the way that we operate in groups. I think sacred cows are the same way. I think it produces some anxiety in us as a whole group where we can't get rid of something because we're, we feel like if we do, we're going to go into like a panic attack, just trying to think through it. So what will happen is like the Pharisees trying to get rid of Jesus for fear of they might lose their religion. I think churches do the same thing. The autonomous church, local churches will do the same thing. They will push out what is good and biblical for fear that they might lose their traditions. And I think that that's something that we always have to consider in church life. Are we hanging on to stuff because we feel like it's going to be a negative interpretation on on our church or are we getting rid of stuff because we're like, that's not scripture. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, and that's why I think about when I think about that passage in John, the Pharisees trying to get rid of Jesus because he's obviously come to fulfill everything they've been preaching about and talking about for decades, centuries. Here's Jesus to bring all that to fruition. And they're like, well, he's going to get rid of my, my good lamb. Where am I going to get my sacrificial meat from? If this guy comes in, like then all meat is okay. You know, it's like uh meat from the market is good. That's not right. Like it's supposed to be altar meat. What's the deal here? Um, my temple tax, where's that going to go? My, all these other things, the things that I'm getting some kickbacks on, all that's going to go away if this guy really gets his way. And so let's get rid of him. Um, it's not uncommon. I think churches do the same thing. It may not be that extreme, but I think we'll remove Jesus from certain aspects of our church in order to continue to do things the way that we feel like we should do them or the way that we've always done them. Um, and that's a scary place to be in. I think it's a really scary place to be in. So very scary place, but I also think that's a good place to end. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think if we get too far into it, we're going to be going, we're going to start stepping on another whole other rabbit hole and that's not our intention, but, um, let us know your thoughts on this too. Like if there's certain sacred cows that you know about text us, you know, call us, we want to, uh, either, either grumble with you or we want to laugh with you. Or if you know funny stories about that, it's just, sometimes it's good to have some humor and we want you guys to know too, that some of what we do, um, part of our, our job and our profession, our vocation is to always push that a little bit further and to get you guys to begin to think and say, wow, I never thought about that that way. It doesn't mean that you're going to change your opinion or your mind on it, but hopefully it gives you a perspective of how people around you may think or consider some things. Um, but we really want to know your thoughts. So if you have any thoughts on that, if you have any uh, questions on it, feel free to comment, um, or just call us, send us an email and we'll try to get with you as soon as we can. Other than that, records are on baby watch, uh, 2022. So we'll see what happens. And, uh, we hope that you guys have a blessed week and a wonderful day.